Thank you for coming Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm so excited to be here today. In 2015, I founded the queer improv show Thank You For Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it. And it is now one of the longest running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. On the podcast, it's a little bit different. We have a guest who comes and shares their story, and then we have a conversation about it. And I am so excited about our guest today. Uh, my dear friend, Leah Abai, pronouns they, she, he. Leah, hi, how are you? Hi, Doves. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited I'm so that you're here. You're such a light, oh, a little you. BB. Retweet. Mm. That got you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we all have multiple coming out stories, um, and I would love to hear one of yours. Yeah. So I came out a little bit later in life. Um, I moved to New York when I was 24. I'm 27 now. And up until then, I had mostly been dating cisgender men. And remember, like, I have this moment of sitting in my apartment. And it was in March because I had just moved in with Chris. And I was like, I feel that I might be a little gay and that I am interested in dating women. And at the time, it was only, you know, I, I, was, I thought maybe I was a lesbian. And I didn't say anything to any of my friends because I was very scared. Mm -hmm. And then I was out at a bar with two of my closest friends and had a couple drinks. I was feeling a little bit more confident in, in, in voicing what I was really feeling. And I brought out my phone and I was on Bumble and I was like, I think that I want to date women also and men. And my friends were like, okay. And so my, my friend took my phone and changed the settings and opened it up to men and women. And he just started swiping on people. And, um, it was liberating and terrifying and also felt really easy. And that was, you know, I understand that there's a lot of privilege that's attached to that. But, um, when I, when I told a lot of my buddies and I told my roommate and I told people that I was working with, um, that I was meeting these women and then I was going on dates, everybody was just sort of like, okay, you know. Um, of course, there were some people who were confused because I um, am an incredibly, like, sex-positive person and I love dating and I loved talking about my partners and I was, you know, in these really intense, serious relationships with cisgender men, but that just, things just were shifting and changing in my world and in my mind and it was just okay, I guess. Um, and then I, I met my first girlfriend and we started seeing each other and I was going home to visit my parents um, and I'd planned on coming out to them. And um, my parents are pretty liberal. Um, I'm, I'm from Akron, Ohio. Ohio represent. You. <laughs> um, and my mom is 100% Italian, but my mom is white and my dad is 50% German and 50% Ethiopian. My dad's black. Um, and coming from this like super liberal upbringing where my parents were sort of like you can be whoever you want to be you can date whoever you want to date and you know they said that in less words I still felt very nervous about talking to them about my sexuality and I, like doy right with a y mm -hmm. like why like, of course I was nervous to talk to them about yeah. this but um I took a like 10 hour megabus trip home oof and the whole time I was just like, I'm going to come out to my parents when I get home. I'm going to do that. And um, the bus pulled into Pittsburgh, and then my parents picked me up in Pittsburgh, and then they drove me back to Akron, which is like another hour and a half mm -hmm. um, ride. And I was so nervous to tell them that I ended up telling my parents that I had like tried cocaine because I was trying to like <laughs> soften the blow, LOL, no pun intended. Um, oh, hello. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I <laughs> And, yes. you know, my mom was like, she was driving and, and she was like, what's going on? Like, you know, and then we got home and we were having dinner and I was just, you know, I told them um, I, I met someone and I think they had been waiting because I'd been single for quite some time. And they were like, that's so exciting. You know, well, who is it? And I said, you know, her name is me. And <laughs> they were sort of like, okay. Um, and then they were like, show, me, show us a picture. Um, and then later, you know, in the evening I was like, I was so scared to tell you guys. And my parents were just sort of like, 
why? Like, what made you nervous? Like, you know that we'll love you no matter what happens. And I understand that that is not the story of a lot of folks. And um, I feel so lucky and privileged to have parents that accepted me. And especially coming out at a, an older age felt sort of different to me and I wasn't sure and everyone had kind of just written me off as like Leah this cisgender straight person you know and mm-hmm. um but yeah like everyone was so welcoming and just took me for exactly who I was which was pretty great I must say yeah that's really incredible thanks thanks for sharing of course it's like kind of lame like coming out story I know this before like yeah it doesn't feel you know because it went quite smoothly mm-hmm. um of course, there were people that were like, did you change your mind? And I was like, no. Um, but yeah, but I after that, I identified as a lesbian for quite some time. I guess like maybe a year or so mm-hmm. throughout my first relationship because I think my, my partner was very um, interested and, and maybe even a little bit obsessed with me being a lesbian. That was very important to her. Um, me being bisexual, I think, was kind of scary to her. Um, And so I was like outwardly projecting I'm a lesbian and kind of like really diving into this like lesbian culture. Mm -hmm. You know, go to the cubbyhole all the time. Oh, the cubbyhole. And then I was like, you're not a lesbian though. You're maybe bi? Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was like, maybe you're pan? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of rolling on and going, but um, Yeah. yeah. And then... That's like my sexuality coming out story, I would say. So does that imply that you have another coming out? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Um, yeah, so I I dated mostly, well, only cisgender women. And then this year when I entered into school and, you know, kind of started exploring myself and learning about who I was and um, – always kind of having that in the back of my head like you're not a lesbian like that word felt so wrong to me and then Mm -hmm. even like pansexual started kind of feeling wrong and and then I started hearing people using the word queer a little bit more openly and and I remember hearing queer as a young person and feeling like it was a naughty like dirty word almost um but now I would say queer is one of the only words that feels like it encompasses everything that is me like Mm -hmm. queer I I use queer to describe my sexuality but then also um when speaking about my gender um you know she her started feeling really wrong for me Mm -hmm. and I started feeling like icky when people would use she her but not all the time um and then so I started using they them pronouns um and then People were asking me, you know, is this something that you want us to use all the time? Do you only want us to use they, them pronouns? And and that felt sort of icky for me, too, because I was just like, I'm just Leah. Mm-hmm. Like, there are so many parts of me that feel like they're made up of a million little pieces. And some of those pieces feel like a woman. And some of those pieces feel like a man. Mm-hmm. And some of those pieces feel like just something else but it all feels like me. Mm -hmm. So now I identify um, as like gender fluid, gender queer, gender expansive is something that I'm, you know, trying out what that word means. But I, as we were talking about kind of before, like maybe that word doesn't feel um, as common to some people and Mm -hmm. they haven't heard it. And so they're, they maybe don't understand what gender expansive means, but what gender expansive feels like to me is that I can be anything I want. Yeah. And I can be whoever I want. And I don't have to fit into any of these little boxes. And I kind of feel like Sound of Music, you know? Like, yeah. I won't sing The Hills Are Alive, but, like, I, mean, I can stretch my arms it. out wide and, like, be exactly who I want to be. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. that it's Words are so important, but they all can also put us in boxes. So it's finding that balance mm-hmm. of what words affirm us and also... And, and what words free us so we can spin on top of a mountain and then mm. what words feel oppressive totally. um, and finding that balance and also knowing that those words can always change mm. and we're not locked in to any kind of identity. 
Right. That's why I think using they, she, and he feels so important to me. Um, I kind of like have joked with people um, and they'll ask, you know, like what your kink is. And I'm like, when someone uses all three pronouns in one sentence, Mm -hmm. like that makes me feel so seen. And totally, I understand that that's super hard for people, especially folks that have known me as Leah, she, her for my entire life. But for someone to look at me and interchangeably use different pronouns, I just feel like that person really sees me for exactly who I am. And it's incredibly validating. Yeah. I know that feeling (laughs) when people, you know, we talk a lot about gender dysphoria and that Mm -hmm. anxiety and disconnection from, you know, parts of who you are with other parts of who you are. Mm -hmm. Um, but we don't talk enough about gender euphoria and that euphoric feeling when people see you and how validating that feels. I, I know exactly what you mean when you talk about when people look at you and use the, the pronouns that are yours. Mm-hmm. It's just the most validating euphoric thing ever. Absolutely. Yeah, so I'm with you. So you have, you've talked to me before about this rock metaphor that I think would fit mm-hmm. into this conversation perfectly. Uh, would you mind sharing with the class? Yes, of course. Um, for so many years, um, I've sort of felt like each of my feet is standing on a different rock and they're sort of moving in all of these different directions. And like, I think I used to view that as really unstable and really like, um, I, I really hate the unknown. You know, you know this about me, but mm-hmm. I hate not knowing. I'm, I, uh, my Virgo moon comes out super hard and I want to like know what's going on and be controlling and kind of organize and 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 feel safe and stable I think that that's something I've craved for so long so then to constantly feel like my feet are between these two rocks that are moving is like unnerving to me and like how can I move forward when my feet are moving in different directions sort of and what Um, do the rocks represent have you said that and did I zone out I don't think so I don't I don't think so um and I don't know like if they represent necessarily to concrete things mm-hmm. um but they definitely don't represent one stable thing mm-hmm. I think that that's the thing that really that I that I think about and that I sort of fixate on the fact that you know most people like what are those things called in airports that you like stand on that move moving walkway <laughs> there we go mm. um like a lot of people I see in my life and I see both of their feet planted on that and they're just like do, 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 moving along. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I want that so bad, but I can't find that. Um, and I can't remember if I told you this when we were talking about it before, but something I've been trying to think about is sort of reframing what those two rocks feel like. And mm-hmm. every time my body is sort of moving one way or the other, those like fast twitch muscles are sort of engaging. Yeah. And so it's giving me more strength. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, the longer I sit in the unknown, you know, like, well, I guess I should say fortunately, I get stronger. Yeah. But it's still so hard to live in that space and to feel like, you know, how lucky am I that I live in a world and I live in New York where I can change and shift. And especially when it comes to my gender and my sexuality, no one is, um, no one's policing that. Well, except except for like everyone, everyone, but like like four people. Right. But like my, my, my people are like so open and they're allowing me to continue moving on these two rocks, but, oh, there's a part of me that wants those rocks to come together so badly. And for that to be stable and for me to be on that moving walkway, you know? Yeah. That's exactly what I wanted you to to talk about. So (laughs) (laughs) good. Thanks. You're welcome. I, I really love that reframing that you, that you have brought up of this actually is making you stronger Mm. um, because there's no way to predict life and there's no way to predict the things that are going to be happening. And so if, if one can reframe it in a way that's positive and that's making them stronger, I think that that is awesome. Um, Delicious ambiguity. And that's also, you know, it's like, it's, that is not me. That is Gilda Radner. Um, But I wish I could take credit for that, but I cannot. Um, Yeah, that's just, it's, it's like, right, I could look at those two rocks Mm -hmm. and be like, my life is fucked, like, I'm constantly, like, in this middle space, and how, 
awful does this feel that I can never find my footing and I can never find my way? Like, and I have those moments like 3,000 times a day. Like, I, I do feel that deep fear and pain of not having stability, which is something I've, I've craved for so long. It's kind of, it's why I transitioned into a more stable career, you know? Um, but also like, if I look, if I continue to look at my life in this negative way, I'm going to be miserable. Mm -hmm. And so not to say that everything has to be, I have to be happy all of the time and I can't feel sad and I can't feel these things, but like, I can reframe it and I can look at it look at it as a strength rather than a weakness. Definitely. And I would I want to interview the people who are on the moving walkway who are like do 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 and like how are they feeling? They're probably looking at you who's like building the strength and can, you know, is moving between rocks and they're like, "Wow, I wish that I had that kind of flexibility." It's I think it's just a matter of perspective as well. Well, you strike me as a person who's on the moving walkway. Interesting. Yeah. Say more about that. Um, Please. I mean, you are like one of the most put together, driven people that I know who I feel like questions things sometimes. And we have really intense conversations where, you know, we both feel sad and we both feel like this part of life can feel shitty at times. Mm -hmm. um, but you kind of strike me as a person who has it all figured out. I know you're going to be mad at me for saying no, that. I'm not, like, no, I'm not mad. That's that's nice to like hear. You, you've got it and you've got clarity. And like I was saying earlier, like I need to surround myself with people who are able to help me find clarity and folks that are able to help me parse through the like madness that's sometimes going on in my head. Like that's why I text you 8,000 times a day because – when those things are kind of stirring and feeling crazy and the rocks feel like they're moving further and further away from each other, mm -hmm. it grounds me to find someone who grounds me mm -hmm. and someone who has their feet together. And I can kind of like, eh, it's, I'm imagining myself like grabbing onto your belt loop and being like, take me with you. <laughs> How funny would that be? Uh, well, that's really nice. Thank you for yeah. saying that. Um, it's all about perspective. Like, I also feel like I, you know, on the one hand, do feel like I have things together, but also I feel lost a lot of the time, too. So I think there's a, and then just a nice little balance of also how we project ourselves versus how we are mm. on the inside is also Totes. something to explore. Totes. Yeah. But, I, you know, I also will say that I have worked really hard for a really long time to get to where I am now, to mm -hmm. where I do actually feel a little bit stable and know where I'm going and what I want and what I'm doing and have that drive to accomplish it. So thank you. Thank you for noticing that. Why? <laughs> it means, means you're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you mentioned transitioning, pun intended, uh, into a more stable yeah. career. Um, why don't you tell us about that? I grew up in Akron, Ohio, and um, I was a dancer. My parents put me in dance classes when I was two. Um, I hated it. Like, I hated it. And they had to force me to go to classes. But then when I was six-ish, I had this incredible teacher who was such a nurturer who really made me um, see dance in a different way and, and understand it, and specifically classical ballet, which was um, my main focus for most of my life. So... You know, I joined a pre-professional ballet company when I was 13, and I did that all through high school. And then after high school, I applied to a university, and I received my Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Dance Performance from the University of Akron. So it was on a performance-focused track. Um, the goal, you know, for the folks, there were eight of us who were getting their BFAs, was to get jobs as performers post-university um, rather than some of the people who were getting their BAs in dance who were, you know, some some also chose to have a performance-related route, but a lot of those folks were um, interested in more education um, and advocacy around dance and bringing dance to communities that are uh, marginalized and, and things such as that. So after college, I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia, and I danced with the Charlottesville Ballet for two years, um, which is a smaller professional ballet company um, in Charlottesville and loved it and dance is still such a huge part of me but you know after dancing there for two seasons and then my contract not being renewed I remember calling my mom and saying 
I, I, I have to move, but I don't know where I'm going to move. Um, and I was thinking these, you know, cities like L.A., Chicago, New York, Philly, D.C., I think were my, my five. And I was kind of looking at the cost of living places and because I knew I was going to go into a freelance career versus working in a company. So, you know, in the company I was dancing in, I was dancing from 830 to 4 every day. And, you know, I, that was my schedule every single day. That mm-hmm. I was really thriving on that stability. Um, but still within that stability, something felt unstable, you know, because the contracts were nine months and you, you weren't sure if they were going to renew your contract after, after a year. And then coming into freelancing where it's like, if, if you don't wake up and get your butt to class, like you don't take class that day. And mm-hmm. also New York is more expensive and you're paying for these classes versus when I was dancing for a company, I, I was in an unpaid position, but I wasn't paying for classes or rehearsals. So I was sort of, you know, th- this was my job. Um, so it shifted a lot. So my mom was like, you should just move to New York. You've wanted to live there since you were eight years old. So I moved to New York and I thought I was going to dance. And then I got here and I was like, wow, I don't want to do this anymore. Like I met this awesome person who tried to take me to classes with her all the time and was really supportive of me, but I just like didn't feel the love that I felt. I didn't have those butterflies in my stomach. It was like waking up in the morning to go to class was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, and you know, I wish hindsight were 2020 in this moment. And I wish I could see what else was happening in my life. That was, I have some ideas of things, you know, that were taking me and pulling me away from dance. But I think that one of them was that it was hard mm-hmm. to be an artist in New York. And I think that in the space, in my, my mental health was not strong enough for me to continue to dance in the capacity and the way that I wanted to. Um, so I eventually stopped going to class and I was working in a restaurant for a year, year and a half. And I just started thinking like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like, what am, what am I going to do? I kind of thought I would get my MFA in dance because for a long time I thought I wanted to teach at a collegiate level. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I don't even find joy in dancing myself. How am I supposed to bring joy to other folks and help them develop this dance career? Like that's, it's not going to happen. So, um, I was on the phone with my uncle one day and just kind of trying to talk about what I thought I wanted to do, and he suggested that I started volunteering. So in you know, two years ago now, I guess, I started volunteering at the Hetrick Martin Institute. Really simply started doing, like, front desk work for them, checking in the youth as they would come in. What is the um, Hetrick Martin Institute? Yes, I'm sorry, I was yep. just going to say. Um, the Hetrick Martin Institute is an after-school program for a homeless LGBTQ youth. It is, I think they serve folks from, like, 13 to 24. Um, and it's affiliated with the Harvey Milk High School. It's within, like, the same building. But Hetrick Martin Institute is this, like, after-school uh, program where they offer – meals and they offer clothing and they offer they have shower services they also offer art and they offer dance and they offer yoga and they have um or they did when I was there they had um kiki which was like you could go and dance and like the ballroom and you could vogue and all of this like Mm. it was incredible um so I was there and then I started uh volunteering with homeless youth services and organizing their pantry and I started meeting all these social workers and I was like, wow, what you're doing is so cool. Um, and at this time, I, I thought maybe I was interested in going back to school and getting my master's, but I wasn't really sure what in. And I kind of thought public health, weirdly. I don't think I knew what public health really was mm. at the time. And then someone was like, no, I think what you want to do is, is social work. And then I started looking into programs and talking to more people and meeting people, more people who were social workers. And it was like, the glass just like broke and Mm -hmm. all of these like sirens started going off and like my armpits were sweaty and (laughs) I was just like wow this is this is what I want to do and so I had been volunteering for maybe six or eight months and I applied to graduate school and I knew that I didn't want to leave New York um so I applied to NYU and Columbia Mm -hmm. um like really not trying to be an elitist, but I was like, I don't want to leave. Um, and I knew that I wanted to focus on the LGBTQ population and like there are gays everywhere, doy. But like there is so much work I think that can be done in New York. And like folks look at New York as sort of this um, 
melting pot in this space. And I kind of felt like if I can do some work here and then it can kind of keep expanding and expanding and expanding and maybe it can span across the country. Um, so I was accepted into NYU in Columbia and was sort of like, I don't know what I want to do and had had applied to Columbia on more of a policy track. So within social work, there's a clinical focus, there's a community organizing focus, and then there's a, a like program and policy. And like, yes, there are a bajillion other things in between. Um, and I had applied on a policy track and I was talking to my therapist about it and saying how this felt right to me and how I was going to be this social worker, but like, I wasn't going to talk to anyone. I wasn't going to have to talk to people. I was just mm. going to get to make change. And she was like, you know, why? Why do you think you want that? And I was like, well, I just don't think that I could do direct practice. I think I would become way too invested in these people. And she was like, well, that, that makes a great social worker, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, learning how to invest yourself and then also establish boundaries is like, you know, our, our lifelong goal of what we're trying to figure out. But like yeah. what really makes someone an excellent clinician and is their ability to empathize and their ability to say, I don't understand. I'll never understand what you've been through, but I'm going to hold this space for you and I'm going to make you feel seen and I'm going to make your story and your life um, make you feel seen in that way and and make you feel validated. And um, so then I chose NYU because it was more of a clinical program Mm -hmm. and, oh gosh, I'm so happy I did that. I, and now I like, I love direct practice. I love getting to talk to clients one-on-one and it, just being around the clients that I was at, with at my internship last year just m- filled me up, filled my cup more than I can ever put into words. Mm-hmm. Really, it did. It's incredible. It's so Thanks. awesome that you've been, that you found your glass shattering right? aha thing that you want to be doing in life right it's awesome and like I think that that idea right of things beginning in New York and then expanding 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 is is still really prevalent in my mind because Mm -hmm. um I do I am really interested in program development and and developing a program in New York that could maybe be taken to hospitals and nonprofits nationwide um really focusing on gender-affirming counseling specifically for trans folks um and learning how to be a clinician, you know, really improving these skills as a clinician, but then also focusing it on this population that has been oppressed and marginalized, and it still is, mm-hmm. and learning how how we as a country and a society and also how, like, moms and, and dads and, like, family members and everyone can support these folks, how we can do that. Um, and... I'm really, I'm really hoping I can, that's like my 10 year plan, you know, is to develop some sort of program that in hospitals as folks are undergoing gender affirming surgeries that they can have a social worker and a therapist who kind of moves through that process with them. Mm -hmm. Um, Because that's, they don't really have that now, which is kind of mind blowing to me, but I know they do see it as a a barrier to care. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I know that NYU First of all, I love that plan. I'm here for it. <laughs> Thank and you. And anything I can do to help support it, please ask. Thank you. Uh, NYU, I had my top surgery at NYU, and that was in 2016, and there was not any kind of social worker or liaison present. Okay. But then in following years, when I've had re- certain revisions back at NYU, there has been a social worker who has emailed me. I think his name is Kevin. Um, not, Kev. doesn't matter. <laughs> Kevy. Like, he emails, and he basically was checking in and saying, I'm your social worker. I, I know you have this upcoming surgery. What are your pronouns? We want to make sure that you are feeling affirmed when you come into the space, which is like beautiful, incredible. Um, and then I had this experience where, so I had emailed him back and gave him the information he asked and his pronouns were in his email signature, which was incredible. Love you. Right. Kev. Um, and so I was there at like six in the morning. I was one of the first appointments for this revision. And the one of the nurses was talking about me and used she, her pronouns, even though my pronouns are they, them. Mm. So in my head, I'm going, I'm already really nervous about going under, going totally. under. And then I get misgendered, which is hard every time. Every time it's hard. Yep. Um, and then I'm thinking, why did Kevin email me? 
and ask me this information if it's not going to be used. And I just started getting, I don't know if I was getting angry, but I was upset. Yeah. And then trying to like focus back on, okay, I'm going under the knife. I need to focus on that. Mm. And then about two minutes later, the nurse who misgendered me came in and said, I'm so sorry that I used <laughs> the wrong pronouns. I just looked at your file um, and I, I'm deeply sorry. And I was floored. I was like, all right, let's do this. And just was like, felt so affirmed and it's a process, right? Like, you know, totally. people, we are so socialized to ju- make judgments, snap judgments based on someone's appearance oh, that yes. on the one hand, it's all about intent versus impact. And like people's intentions mostly are great, but that impact is so real and so intense. Um, so anyways, I digress, but there are definitely steps being made totally to make these moments in folks' lives more affirming. Totally. However, that this is, I, in my experience, this is so, so, so rare. And so I am so here for you mm. making a program that makes all spaces within the medical field and mental health field more affirming. Right, because they're, they're, they're still separate in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, not, not to, like, have too much of a political agenda and X, Y, Z, but, like, healthcare rarely covers mental health right. in a way that makes it accessible for folks. You know, mm-hmm. I, I have healthcare through NYU, um, and I still, I mean, I see a therapist who, it, uh, they don't accept insurance. Um, they, they do insurance reimbursement, but I pay $70 a week to go to therapy. Like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. And like, why why do I pay $25 when I go see my OBGYN or I think I might have strep throat um, and then I pay $70 to improve my mental health, which, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that the mental and the physical are connected. Oh, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, that's another thing, like, making healthcare and healthcare encompassing physical and mental more accessible to folks and not making it, like, niche and privileged to, to be able to um, grow your mental health. Like, mm-hmm. no, no, no. That's something that every single human being deserves. Definitely. Yeah. Oof. I'm so Retweet. Sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're talking about a lot of stuff. I'm just like a sweaty person, but yeah, but that also, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want I want to kind of switch gears, but not really switch gears. But building off of what we've been talking about, of just kind of culminating, cul- culminating is that the right word? Bringing together um, some of the things that we've been talking about. So we we've talked about. Um, like making judgments about people based on the way that they look Mm. um, and trying to free ourselves from doing that because it can feel oppressive to the folks that we are doing that to. And so I want to have a conversation around like what does it look like to be trans or cis or what does it look like to be white or a person of color and what comes with the privilege of quote-unquote passing as the less marginalized identity versus what happens when someone doesn't fit into that box. So we had, we'd had conversations about hidden identity. So I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Totally. Um, and I also just like want to preface this, that this is like the Leah Amanda Abai story of how I view my identities and like that this is no one else's, you know, no one else will have this experience. And, um, thank you for the disclaimer. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I talk about my hidden identities all the time. I think that, like, and I even hate saying this, like, I think I've gotten more queer-looking, whatever that means, you know, mm-hmm. um, in my time, in my life. Um, but, like, you know, if you see me, I think most folks on the street think straight, cis, white woman, um, which feels so far from from me. So for a long time when I was discovering my gender um I didn't feel like the word trans necessarily applied to me Mm -hmm. um or felt right but then I was like cis does not feel right either like I don't feel aligned all the time Mm -hmm. with this body you know that that I was 
born into. And, and if we're, and, and speaking for me, like from a, a physical sense, um, like I love my breasts and I love my vagina and I love things about me that some people feel, some people have a lot of dysphoria about. Um, and so for a while when I was like thinking, okay, does trans feel right? Does, does cis feel right? I was like, well, I don't have a problem with this physical body necessarily. So does that make me not trans, mm-hmm. I guess? And then I was like, no cis, S-I-S, like <laughs> S-Y-S. S-Y-S. Um, like, no, 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 it's not necessarily – it's not about what's in your, your physical body really at all. It's about what feels what that, what that feels like on the inside. So the fact that I am able to walk down the street and most people think that I am cisgender, like uh, feels like a privilege, but then also feels like annoying as fuck. Like, yeah, because so you see me and you see that I, wear whatever I'm in quotes feminine clothing because I'm wearing a dress or because I have breasts or because I'm wearing makeup um and and people look at me and think okay she is you know x y and z yeah I would be lying if I said that that doesn't allow me to have privilege um but it also feels like I don't really fit into Sometimes it feels like I don't really fit into either cis or trans. Maybe this is where the rock thing is coming up, too. Mm -hmm. I think that that brings it back. And then, you know, shifting a little bit to another hidden identity that I think feels even more difficult for me to talk about and express is my race. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of touched on this earlier, but my mom is Italian and and white, and my dad is German and Ethiopian and... um, is black, um, but is like a a lighter, he has like a little bit of a lighter skin tone. Um, and like when I was growing up, people would literally ask me if I was adopted, like people, cause my, my sister is a little bit older and she has a darker skin tone and like darker hair and, um, her features are a little bit different. Um, mine are a little bit more European. Um, I, I look a lot like my grandmother who was German. Um, and I'm like, I think I was sort of ashamed that my family didn't look like everyone else's and like that there weren't a lot of mixed race families where I was growing up. There there was diversity, absolutely, but like especially not folks that looked like my parents, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I never really felt like I fit in with like the white kids at my school, but I never really felt like I – two things, fit in with people of color or also could hold that space. That Mm -hmm. space feels like it's not a place for me. Um, And so I, in like clinical settings and in settings, um, uh, like professional settings, I rarely talk about my my race because it feels like I'm like encroaching on a space that's not mine, but like, is it? Like I'm tw- I'm 25% Ethiopian, mm-hmm. so like, is that space a little bit mine? I don't know, um, but like, so many people when I've talked to them about my race and I've said that I'm you know 25% Ethiopian, people will be like, I don't believe you. Mm. I'm like, first of all, Carol, yeah. um, <laughs> what? Like, right. why are you questioning me? But but also like you know unfortunately we still do live in a world where um there is racism running rampant like through the streets like there is there is a lot of racism even in new york even in like one of the most progressive cities in in the entire world so yeah i also do i also do feel like there is a lot of privilege in the fact that i'm white passing um and you know i've had people say things to me before like um, um, people might find this problematic, but um, I like you more now that I know that you're part black. Interesting. Um, which, like, I don't really know if I want anyone to like me for anything other than, like, me. Which Your soul. My soul. My race is a part of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it feels like something that I can hide really, really easily. Um, then also talking about it in spaces where I'm not sure how safe I am mm-hmm. 
and also don't want to make anyone else feel unimportant or not seen or like I'm, you know, like my, my friend invited me to this like QPOC party during Pride. And I was like, I just like maybe don't feel like that's the right space for me. And they were like, well, technically you're a person of color. And I was like, I, I am, but that doesn't feel right for me to be in that space. And mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I need to definitely unpack that more with my therapist and continue to learn about that. Um, but yeah. Does that answer? Yeah. Things? Yeah. And I think sure. that the, the yeah. rock thing goes to the race thing too, because like, doy, there are more races than black and white, but like those are the races that make up Leah. Mm -hmm. um, and those also seem historically to be the, the two races that hold uh, the most friction, you know, and, you know, when my parents got married and my parents got married in the eighties, but, um, my parents were growing up, they, they grew up in the, the 50s and 60s, and, like, I, my grandmother was uh, thrown out of her church for marrying a black man. And so I think that there is a lot of that shame and um, guilt and a lot of things wrapped up in that um, part of my identity that I haven't yet tackled. Mm -hmm. And so maybe the fact that it's hidden, I kind of... Oof, I'm having a realization in hey. the moment. But like maybe th there's a part of that that I'm choosing to keep hidden because I'm just not ready to unpack that yet. Yeah, that's so valid and real. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah, of course. I think I'm I'm just remembering, I'm thinking about the time of before I cut my hair short, mm. I had long blonde hair. And I remember feeling really... I remember for the longest time feeling safe behind it because I could then pass as straight if I needed to. At that point, I wasn't identifying, you know, affirming myself as trans. I didn't know that that was something I was dealing with. Mm -hmm. But I remember thinking, like, I don't have to, depending on what space I'm in, I can hide behind this hair. Because oh, to yeah. me, I equated long hair with being straight. And, Totes. you know, it was a very simplified way of thinking about things. But for me, that's because how you were saying, I wasn't ready to unpack what it would mean and what I would have to deal with if I cut my hair. Right. And then I would have nothing to hide behind. Um, not to say that straight people can't have short hair. Of course they can. But for me, right. in my experience, that's what I was holding on to. Um, so I definitely feel that I know you know hair length is different than race but I can empathize with totally. that feeling of being able to hide and then also kind of avoid unpacking and then as we were talking about this morning when it's almost like when we're ready to deal with something that's when we'll do it totes like I'm not ready to deal with like a lot <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah yeah I do kind of hide behind that and like but also like why why would you have cut your hair when you weren't ready to do that so you can allow yourself to is so you can open up yourself to feel pain inflicted by other people absolutely not like that's horrible and awful um so yeah that's like you're you're so right we don't we, we're not ready to deal with some stuff and I think that it's normal to hide behind it but I think being aware of that yeah is a difference between you know mm -hmm. um, definitely you know, having that privilege and, and not acknowledging it and, and, and kind of denying the fact that you have that privilege and then versus stating it and being aware and mm -hmm. then choosing to use that privilege in a way that not as a white savior and not that I need to save people or that my voice is more valid or anything like that, but I do have more privilege, so why would I not use it? to make a world that feels better for me, but that I hope can feel better for other folks. Mm -hmm. For sure. Do you have any hidden identities? Uh, no one ever thinks that I'm Jewish. Is that like, a, I mean, I don't know too much about like, how like, it's, uh, like do people just like look at people and say like, huh, huh, Jewish. Like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think so. I, oh, okay. I think, I mean, not, oh, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, when, when it's stereotypically speaking, Jewish people have darker hair, brown eyes. 
right. quote unquote bigger noses. Totes, okay. And I have, I don't actually know if my nose is big or not, but you I'm. You have a cute nose. Oh, thank you. Um, blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm. Um, and don't, and so I really, I do feel like I stick out in a lot of Jewish spaces for that purpose, for that reason. And also back to what does it look like? What does it mean to look like to be queer? I said that funny, but mm. I also look, I am like visibly queer looking. And so going into a lot of different Jewish spaces, not all, but a lot, which is why I do the work that I do at Keshet, um, is to break down those barriers and not to assume that someone isn't Jewish because they look a certain way. Or if a person of color walks into a synagogue, don't assume that they're not part of that community, totally. which happens all of the ding ding time. Right. So just, so I, I so yes, yeah, so I would think I think being Jewish is a hidden identity of mine. Um, what do you think uh, appearing visibly queer means? I don't mean to put you on the spot, yeah. but like I yeah. I like am totally that person who is like walking down the street and I'm like, you gay, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. but like why? Like, what are those things that make me, you know, mm-hmm. think that? And then am I like enforcing these stereotypes? Then I go down like a deep rabbit hole, but totally, I do the same thing. It's all, yeah. I, I think people perceive me to be a woman because of my the sound of my voice. Mm. Most people perceive that. I'm over here shaking my head. <laughs> I know what the hell. Yeah, I know, right? Thank you. Um, and so there are certain sets of quote unquote guidelines or stereotypes that we then place upon women. So when somebody breaks those stereotypes or those molds, then in my mind, that feels queer. Okay. And so for me, having short hair, having had top surgery, the way, the way that I dress is, I don't even know how I would describe it. I guess more on the masculine side, but then, but then it, like you're saying like, but what is masculinity? What is femininity? And in describing myself and others in this way, like you're saying, are we reinforcing, am I reinforcing these binaries that are so harmful? Totally. And it's something that I struggle with and think about all the time. Mm. But that's kind of how I feel, what I what I mean when I say I look queer. Okay. Um, I, I told you when I was in Warby Parker, one of the people, I the, one of the first things they say to me is, I clocked your top surgery from a mile away. And it was so, it was like, Huh? What? <laughs> like, yeah. yes, and I don't have a chest, but then that also means you're perceiving other parts of me as feminine, right? Then assuming that I had top surgery, it's like this whole big mess of things I'm, that I that I also mm. am processing of. So now I'm just kind of rambling. But does that answer your yes. question? Does that make sense? Yeah. The binary sucks so hard. It like, sucks so hard. Okay, and like. Also, sometimes I say that and then I'm like, yo, for folks that are transitioning within the binary, like it is so incredibly important. But like last night, so right now I'm working at a restaurant um, in between my years of of graduate school and I, um, there's a dish on the menu. It's a squash blossom piccata. Mm. So I don't know if, do you know what a squash blossom is? No, but squash blossom piccata is like the most beautiful phrase I've ever heard in my life. Great. So... Uh, please call me that friend. Wait, what is it? Now. Squash? Squash blossom piccata. I almost said squash bottom. Squash <laughs> hey, that's blossom <laughs> yeah, piccata. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm totally I just wrote that down. Not a bottom. Um, <laughs> um, but so like it, it was for, if I could make my assumption, um, cisgender men. Mm-hmm. And they were like, are these female? Okay, so actually now I got to go back. Do, do, do. Okay, so squash blossom. There's a squash, and then the flower on top is the is the blossom. Is it part of the squash, or it's, is it added to it? It's part of the squash, and so the flowers are taken off, and then a lot of times they're stuffed with like cheese and herbs, and then they're baked. How the restaurant I work at does this is they they don't stuff them; they just like really lightly um, they lightly coat them in breadcrumbs, and then they fry them in a pan, and then they use a piccata style sauce. So like mm. anchovy, garlic, lemon, you know, it's fabulous. Wow. So my table says are these male or female blossoms and i was like <clears throat> gender queer um i didn't know that squash blossoms had a gender and like one of them made some joke about like 
oh, we're not all gender fluid. And I was like, be cool, Leah, be cool. Cause like, I'm not cool. And in those moments, like a lot of times my, my like hot headedness gets ahead of me. But then I said like, you know, well, well so I didn't know that squash blossoms had a gender. And then the, the person did tell me that, um, apparently the male squash, um, the blossom tends to be a little bit more wilted. Um, and it can taste like mushier, I guess. And then the, the female blossom is um, starchier and has more like body or whatever. Stronger, smarter, yeah. faster. And I was like, yeah, she is, honey. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. And then I went back to the table after they had the squash blossom piccata and they were eating it. And I was like, you know, how's everything tasting? And they, they said that they were enjoying it. And then I was like, so did we make a verdict? Uh, male or female and like they didn't get it for a second and then I was like cool 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 that joke is right. fine like yep. but then they, they got it and they, they were laughing and but I was just like why do we have to gender everything yeah like I, I but then sometimes I feel like me trying to do things that are not necessarily feminine or you know like growing my leg hair growing my armpit hair um, am I just reinforcing those binaries by doing something else that's traditionally for men? I don't know. Right. I, then I feel like, what am I doing? You know? Yeah. I'm always really quick to be like, the binary sucks. And I think it's and like back to that, back to that. And, and then as you're saying, like, it actually doesn't. It sucks when it oppresses other people. Yes. Right? Yes. Like that is what I want to, I need to remember that and I need to, because the binary is so powerful for so many people. Absolutely. And also there's nothing wrong with being a binary person, whether totally. you're cis or trans, there's nothing wrong with it. I think, and there was a, there was a period of my life where when I was just affirming myself as trans and using the word, you know, trans and genderqueer and really mm-hmm. trying to find myself, I was, I had such an aversion to the binary, like really just an aversion. And anytime Mm -hmm. anyone said anything remotely binaried, I would flip a shit. And I remember I was having a conversation with my sister and I said something and she was like, I love being a woman. There is nothing wrong with me being a woman and stop shaming me for loving being a woman. And Mm -hmm. I was like, re fucking tweet. Yeah. You are right. Totally. And it was me trying to find almost like, I feel like in those moments I was on rocks and I was just going to say the rock right? is coming right. back and it's I'm like, a, it's yeah. a binary. Like, it's a, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's seriously like I was trying to find my balance of I was oppressed by this gender for so long, coerced hmm. in this way for so long that when I finally found the words and the identities that were right, that were mine, I had to find that balance again. And I was trying, I was overly hating on everything because it was my oppressor for so Which, long. like, doy. Doy. That that would be your reaction. Right. Like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that it's – I also uh, say things like, Ugh, I hate the binary so, so often. Um, and then I don't, like, remember that – still there are people who feel incredibly validated by the binary and that I need to respect them. Um, yeah. So I, I try to remember that even though the binary feels so poo poo to me. Ugh, me too. But, and it's so validating for some people. Right. So it's really just that tension mm-hmm. is so important to acknowledge. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a question back. Um, you mentioned um, that she, her sometimes feels right. And sometimes it doesn't. And they, them sometimes feels right. And sometimes it doesn't. And same with mm-hmm. he, him. Are you able to pinpoint in what moments or scenarios where one feels more affirming than the other? Or is it really just, I don't know. I'll let you answer. I don't, I don't know. Um, and sometimes I feel a little guilty because, you know, when someone, she hears me and it feels shitty to me, like, I don't necessarily say anything because she, her is not a wrong pronoun for Mm me. Um, And then I'm like, well, am I expecting people to like read my mind to know when I'm feeling like I want to use he, him, and when I want to use she, her, and when I want to use they, them? Um, But I feel like I want to try and incorporate it more into my language of speaking about myself and perhaps that will 
allow other people to it. Because I still she, her, myself all the time. Mm -hmm. But, like, the other day, um, Chris and I were talking about getting uh, matching tattoos. And that is too cute. Stop it. <laughs> oh, my God. We're going to get a little roomy tats. Yeah. Um, and we were trying to figure out what we were going to get. And I was like, let's get a wolf. Like, because, like, who thinks to get a wolf? Um, and he was like, why are we going to get a wolf? And I'm like, because I could get it on my forearm. And then people would see me and be like, yeah, he's scary. And I he hemmed myself, mm. like, super normally and naturally. And, like, Chris sort of, like, s sat back. And I said, Oh, did that feel weird for you? And he's like, kind of. Mm -hmm. And like, there's nothing wrong with that, but like, it just was so interesting how natural it came to me. And yeah. um, perhaps if I'm using it more freely and more fluidly throughout the language that I'm, the language I'm using to talk about myself, then it will make it feel more comfortable for other people. Um, because I don't, I don't know if I know that are times that that feel. That, that one pronoun necessarily feels more comfortable than the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought for so often about just using they, them, because then I can steer away from the binary. Yeah. Um, but then I wouldn't get that affirm, like that affirmation from he, him that I just want so bad still. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I misgender myself all the time. Do you do it in text and like write it right out and then you're like delete, delete, delete. That's sometimes, what happens to Sometimes me. in text when I'm, it mostly comes up when I'm training mm. and I'm sharing stories about myself and then talking about conversations about me that people, I, I, I don't really even really can give you, an, I can't even give an, you an example because I can never think of them on the spot. Because when I, I say in trainings, I even misgender myself and people inevitably are like, when how and I'm like I don't actually know I should start writing them down when it happens but it happens a lot because we were socialized to think a certain way and it's coerced so it, coerced <laughs> yeah exactly thank you yeah so it's like it takes a lot of unlearning to then relearn and so that's why I also struggle with that tension of like do I correct somebody because I can't on the one hand I can't expect them to read my mind and to know that that part of me I wonder if uh, now that I'm saying this out loud is being trans a hidden identity because people make assumptions I am so rarely misgendered as he him the only time anyone uses they them is if they already know that those are my pronouns except maybe once someone they themed me and I like exploded because it was the totally. best thing that has literally ever happened in my life mm -hmm. um so I want would that count I mean does that count what counts Oh, well, I don't know, because yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Yes, but, I, but unfortunately, my, you know, in my, in my world, it feels like my hidden identities grant me privilege. Yeah. Whereas I believe that we still live in a world where being trans does not give you privilege. So a hidden identity so, has to grant you privilege? Well, I don't think so, but I think that there are you know, a different types of hidden identities. So. Well, cause for me, I don't feel like being Jewish is a privilege. I mean, I, in my heart believe it's a privilege, mm. but there's also so much anti-Semitism in this world right. right now, especially right now that. Well, now that I'm thinking of it being like a cisgender woman doesn't necessarily give me privilege. Cause like people treat cisgender women like trash. Right. And <laughs> oh my God, being a yeah. person of color doesn't give me any privilege because people treat people of color like trash. So right. like, Maybe it's on the way you frame it yeah. and think about it. Right. Because for me, like, right, no one looks at me and, and is, like, trans. But, mm -hmm. oh, my God, that feels like such a big part of who I am. And yeah. I think something that feels different for me, and I feel that you probably feel similarly, is, like, I don't want to be hidden. No, I'm, like, like the outest right person ever I mean I try to be like yeah same I hid for so long that I'm like this is me and I'm going to metaphorically stand naked in front of everyone I meet and literally sometimes too like this is me this is exactly who I am and I'm not going to like hide or suppress anything about me and like 
that's a lot sometimes, but it, that doesn't feel like something I want to hide. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Maybe I'll, I feel like I need to think about hidden identities more. People don't really talk about their hidden identities. Like, I don't even know where that came up for me, where that, like, popped out of. Mm-hmm. Like, where I learned that term or where I started using it. I'm sure of something in school, but. Yeah. I'm my, I have a million things going on in my brain right now. <laughs> um, I think we need to move into our last segment. Okay. Um, but there are so many things that we didn't get to talk to, talk about. And so that just means that you're going to have to come back. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so this next section is the rapid fire question oh, section. Okay. Um, so just answer to the best of your ability as quickly as possible. Okay. There are no wrong answers except for one. Just kidding, but I'm not kidding. Okay. Okay, you ready? So sweaty. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Writing or reading? Writing. Acting or singing? Acting. Dogs or cats? Dogs. <laughs> Beach or mountains? Beach. Biking or running? Neither. Okay. Bagels or donuts? Bagels. Good. Train or plane? Plane. Pants or shorts? Neither. Dresses. Oh, nice. Coke or Pepsi? Coke. Night or day? Day. Favorite dessert? Tiramisu. Nice. You're a dream. <laughs> you are a dream. Thank you so much for being here and for oh sharing. Oh my gosh, thank you. I'm really impressed that we made it through without crying. Me too. Wow, that's shocking. Next that time. shocking. We will cry next time. I'm sure time. I'll cry in like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to cry right now. Okay. <laughs> thank you for coming out, Leah. I love you. I love you. Thank you for coming out. Hey, it's Dubs Weinblatt, your host of Thank You For Coming Out. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. Please subscribe to our podcast on the platform of your choice. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps.